Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hello everyone, before we begin, I have some announcements. This is episode one, A City Divided, of my new series, Hashtag Black Lives Matter. This series will focus on stories surrounding structural racism and civil rights in Kansas City, and may include some strong language. I also want to take a moment to explain my use of terminology. I'll be using the terms white and black in these episodes because these stories focus on structural racism faced by black Americans, this does not mean that black folks are the only ones who experience racism. Because that is not true. And while we're on the subject, allow me to define structural um, slash institutional slash systematic racism. Um, I'll use those terms interchangeably. It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a form of racism that is so deeply embedded into our everyday lives and society that we white Americans often don't know that it's there. Also, not knowing it's there, that's white privilege. Alright, so why did I choose these topics? Uh, When I started thinking about this podcast and planning for it in early 2019, I knew that I would want to cover stories like these. I just didn't know when. However, America's current socio-political climate definitely gave me the impetus, the incentive to tell these stories now. So that said, I hope it's obvious from the series title which side of the debate that I fall on. And just to be clear, and no one thinks it's ironic because truthfully in other circumstances I would do this, uh, but I do believe that black lives also matter and I support the Black Lives Matter movement, but I am not affiliated with any official or unofficial Black Lives Matter organizations. I just felt that now was the time that these stories uh, be told, be recognized, Because, honestly, I'm betting a lot of black folks already know them, but I'm betting a lot of white folks don't know them. Additionally, for this series only, the series only, interviews with civil rights activists will be available to everyone and not just my patrons. I had one scheduled and then life got in the way we had to delay it, but uh, hopefully I will be able to talk with her soon. And hopefully I will get some others lined up soon. I'm really excited for you guys to hear these stories directly from the people involved. So if you were an activist in the 50s, 60s, or 70s and you would like to tell your story, or if you know someone else who was and think they might be interested, please contact me. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or through my website, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I'm also going to take a quick moment to remind my listeners to be careful when you're out and about, wear your mask, wash your hands, socially distance. Um, I am just getting over a catch of the coronavirus. Uh, It was not fun, guys. It was like a really bad cold. And, you know, I was following all the protocols, so you don't know it'll still happen. Anyways, okay, so um, I had this professor in undergrad who liked to say that there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so I think there's a debate among historians and non-historians alike about the nature of history and whether or not history repeats itself. 
Um, I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard the saying, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, or something along those lines, right? Um, and I've heard a lot of historians argue against this, saying, you know, the moment's never the same twice, the people are different, the circumstances and details are different. Yes, the details might be different, but I fully believe that history repeats itself in the broad strokes. And we are totally seeing that right now. I mean, in the 60s, they protested racial inequality and police brutality and lack of voting rights. I mean, hello, the Civil Rights March and the Civil Rights Act, all of that. Those same issues are plaguing us today. And so that's why I'm doing this show. I want to, my goal is to uplift black voices and their stories and to hopefully help my white listeners come to a deeper understanding of the black experience within our city and gain an empathy for them so that we can not bury the past because in a sense that's already happened. You know, histories of people of color worldwide have been ignored or whitewashed or destroyed or they themselves never wrote anything down or those who did the writing never wrote about them. There's just so many reasons why certain stories haven't been told. And the most basic reason, I think, is power, you know, the creation of it, to the keeping of it. And this is getting a little bit into historical theory and Foucault, which is way off topic. We can talk about Foucault some other day. Um, but my original point, okay, is it's time for us, for white Americans, specifically in this case, white Kansas Cityans, to stop ignoring these stories and to acknowledge the truths of these stories and the influences that they still possess within our city today. Only then can we properly begin to address these issues and come together and be better, better humans in a better city. Hope that makes sense to all of you. All of that long intro. <laughs> um, that said, today's episode is going to focus on a small part of this history of uh, economic inequalities in Kansas City. So, KC residents, y'all probably already got a mental list going as long as your arm as soon as I said that, right? Specifically, I want to zero in on the practice of redlining and the truce divide. Okay, truce divide. Another bell ringer, right? Everybody knows about it, and it's okay to live on one side of the street, but not on the other. But do you know why? Do you know how the truce divide came to be? Well, the short and simple answer is systematic racism. Basically, in the 1950s, the city council, which is made up of a bunch of racist assholes, look around and they go, the blacks are growing there's more of them every year, and they keep moving into our nice white neighborhoods. Well, we can't have that. So, until this time, historian G.S. Griffin said that 20, quote, sorry, quote, 27th Street was the informal boundary line between blacks and whites. In 1940, 71% of blacks lived between Troost and Jackson and Independence Avenue and 31st Street, end quote. So, the population has expanded during this time. And these folks are starting to move west they need more room. They need houses, you know? And, quote, city officials drew a boundary line right down the middle of the city along its longest north-south thoroughfare, Troost Avenue. Let the east side go to the blacks, it was decided. We'll hold the line here, end quote. So there you go. Simple answer. Truce is the divided line in Kansas City because racist city officials at the time were enforcing racial segregation. But wait, there's more. So black residents are already struggling from other older racist policies, practices, and laws, right? Like redlining. 
Redlining is, quote, the illegal practice of refusing to offer credit or insurance in a particular community on a discriminatory basis as because of the race or ethnicity of its residents, end quote. And that is actually the official definition given by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Or is that the quote from, actually, let me double check. Yes, that's the one from Merriam-Webster, sorry. I looked at that one and also a couple others from other encyclopedias and dictionaries, but that is from Merriam-Webster. Okay, so all across America, banks were doing this thing where they look at the demographics of neighborhoods in America and they label them as risky or safe. And the neighborhoods with minorities were always labeled risky because they're racist assholes. And they're like, you ain't white. We can't trust you'll pay back this loan. Simultaneously, America saw the widespread creation of public housing. Okay, so Richard Rothstein of the Economic Policy Institute explains that middle class white and black families couldn't afford to buy houses in the 30s. It's the Great Depression. No surprise. So in response, FDR president is like we need to house these folks and creates public housing for non-military families because military families already had public housing okay anyways so racial prejudice being in full force the housing is segregated the building of these houses is one of his new new programs the public works administration also known as the pwa uh, was founded in 1933 so if you listen to part three of the Pendergast saga, you already heard my spiel about the Great Depression and FDR and the Neo Deal, but here it is again for those of you who have not yet listened to this episode. Please go back and listen to my Pendergast episodes. He was really fascinating. Okay, sorry. I also think, I feel like I'm talking really fast. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Here we go. Okay. So the Great Depression began in 1929, October specifically, with the stock market crash. Basically, in the 20s, everyone's living the high life, and they're investigating, um, sorry, investing into the stock market until they overinvest. And then it's kind of like, have you ever baked a cake or bread, and you pull it out of the oven, and it's big and puffy in the middle, and it's awesome. And then as it cools, it collapses, and it just caves in on itself. That's basically what happened here. So America goes into the Great Depression. Nobody has any money. The unemployment rate is about 25% of the population, and people are literally starving to death. FDR, president, elected in 1932, is like, we're not going to survive if we don't do something. So he creates the New Deal, which is a series of programs like the PWA, or the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. It's another pretty well-known uh, well program. And uh, these provide jobs for thousands of people, um... They travel across America repairing and building bridges, dams, houses, parks, etc. And this is really what gets us out of the new Dep uh, the uh, Great Depression, sorry, is the New Deal. Okay, so before this tangent, I was talking about housing. Um, the PWA is super segregated, and the black population is receiving fewer houses than the white population. According to Rothstein, they only occupy about one-third of the available units, and their houses are in significantly worse condition. No surprise, right? But then we have World War II in the 40s, and every available resource went to the war, including building materials. So these folks are no longer getting new houses, uh, as you know, in bad a shape as they were. At least they were new. Um, anyways, they're 
living in these tiny-ass apartments with multiple family groups. Uh, and President Truman, who uh, succeeded FDR, was like, let's try this again. Senators are like, okay, but they have to stay segregated or we're not going to allow it to pass. So according to Rothstein, quote, until the last quarter of the 20th century, century, excuse me, racially explicit policies of federal, state, and local governments defined where whites and African Americans should live. Today's racial segregation in North, South, Midwest, and West is not the unintended consequence of individual choices and of otherwise well-meaning law or regulation or of unhidden public policy that explicitly segregated every metropolitan area in the United States. The policy was so systematic and forceful that its effects endure to the present time. Without our government's purposeful imposition of racial segregation, the other causes, private prejudice, white flight, real estate steering, bank redlining, income differences, and self-segregation, still would have existed, but with far less opportunity for expression. Segregation by intentional government action is not de facto. End quote. He also said, quote, From the beginning, the real estate industry bitterly fought public housing of any kind. But once the housing shortage eased, the real estate lobby was successful in restricting public housing to subsidized projects for the poorest families only. New federal and local regulations set forth strict upper income limits for families in public housing. Beginning in about 1950, many middle-class families, black and white, were forced out under these new rules. This policy change, mostly complete by the late 1960s, ensured that integrated public housing would cease to be possible. It transformed public housing into a warehousing system for the poor. The condition of public projects rapidly deteriorated. Buildings where they worked when their wages made them ineligible to live there, and partly because of the loss of middle-class rents resulted in inadequate maintenance budgets. The federal government had required public housing to be made available only to families who needed substantial subsidies, while the same government declined to provide sufficient subsidies to make public housing a decent place to live. End quote. That all sounds familiar, doesn't it? And... Sorry now, sorry for the long quotes. I just, I really like the way that he lays it out so explicitly. So I hope you're able to follow those, okay? All right, back on track here. While most of the real estate agents are like, nope, you black, I don't care what other deals you had with the bank, the answer is no. Well, apparently there's actually some real estate agents who are like, hmm, money, money, money. If these guys were animals, they would be rats or sharks. Uh, they were known as blockbusters because they would buy a house in an all-white neighborhood and then sell to a person of color. And then they'd go around to the rest of the neighborhood and they'd be like, more coming. White folks would leave, aka white flight. But that's not all. That's not all. That's not all. Here comes the realtor with a complex mortgage. Okay, that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> but seriously, the banks are loaning black folks, quote, so those brokers would offer to finance the purchase themselves for an outsidized down payment at unreasonable monthly note. Falling behind on the note almost immediately, they'd find themselves foreclosed on in a matter of months. The deed would then revert back to the broker, 
who turn around and sell it again. End quote. This is all legal, but these jerks are basically con artists. They're buying a house they know you can't afford, waiting until you get kicked out, and then selling it again, doing the same thing over and over. And did I forget to mention that black folks who moved into white neighborhoods were harassed? Because they were. Example A. The bombing at the Crittenden residence, I'm 98% sure I pronounced that last name correctly, in 1952. So, they're a black couple who bought a house in Truce Lake neighborhood in 1952, and at this time, it was an all-white neighborhood. Truce Lake is east of Truce Avenue between Paseo, Tracy Avenue, East 29th, and East 31st. This house, uh, specifically, is actually located at 2736 Paseo. So, this is just before the city council decided to use Truce Avenue as a racial divide for the city. And they moved into their house. They hadn't lived there very long, uh, although they've already been harassed several times since they moved in. When someone throws a homemade bomb through the window of their living room, apparently they had friends over at the time, and uh, likely also black, and one of their friends saw the bomb come in through the window, picked it up, and threw it back out before it went off. This is likely the only reason they didn't die that day, guys. So, when the bomb goes off... Um, it's actually powerful enough that it doesn't only cause damage to their house, but it also shattered the windows of their neighbors' houses. And the Sharks, aka Blockbuster Real Estate Agents, stepped in afterwards and bought the Crittenden's neighbors' houses for super cheap because of the damage and because they're like, oh no, your house is getting bombed. We're getting caught in the crossfire. We're going to run away now. So, unfortunately, I couldn't find any more information about these people, um, the Crittendons, or even the house itself. I would really like to know more about their lives, what happened after this particular incident, but... Uh, Griffin goes on to say that, quote, The banks denied home loans to black Kansas Citians for decades. $642 million in home mortgages were written in 1977, and less than 1% were used east of Troost. End quote. There's also the issue of urban renewal. Quote, following World War II and continuing into the early 1970s, urban renewal referred primarily to public efforts to revitalize aging and decaying inner cities, although sub-suburban communities undertook such projects as well. End quote. And this definition is from, also from Merriam-Webster, I believe. Nope, sorry. Um, this definition is from the encyclopedia.chicagohistory.org. Okay. So, it sounds nice, right? Like, this section of our city's not doing well. Let's invest in it, fix it up, add some nice stores and whatnot, and then it'll be prosperous. Wrong. Urban renewal includes demolition, slum clearance, and rehabilitation. So what you end up with is gentrification, the process of repairing homes and rebuilding homes and businesses in a deteriorating area, such as urban neighborhood, accompanied by an influx of middle-class or affluent people that often results in the displacement of earlier, usually poor residents. Okay, so that definition is from Merriam-Webster. So, you spruced up my neighborhood, it's all nice and clean now, and I would really like to live here, but I can't afford to live here. So Casey, along with the rest of America, gets on board with urban renewal in the 1950s. 
Griffin says that businesses and real estate agents led the charge on all housing legislation passed between 1949 and 1954. The National Association of Real Estate Boards labeled public housing socialism and sought to ensure that slum clearance in downtown area would pave the way for private development. They also wished to enforce racial segregation. Go figure. So if you haven't already guessed it, School segregation is just as prevalent in Kansas City as it is um, in the neighborhoods. So, while the black population is expanding westward towards Troost, all those white families who had lived east of Troost and whose children had gone to schools east of Troost are not in the least bit interested in allowing said children to continue attending those schools if black kids also start going there. So the city of Kansas City keeps rezoning the school districts every year to compensate for the population migration. Griffin said every school east of Troost was, quote, 70% black by 1970, end quote. Now, who here remembers civil rights history from middle school or high school? Raise your hand. All right, so I don't know if you actually raised your hand. I hope you did. Anyway, does anyone remember Brown versus the Board of Education? Yes, no, maybe. Recap. America is running on this idea of separate but equal, which was established by Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court case in 1896. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. The self, uh, sorry, Supreme Court is like separate but equal. You have a black train car, you have a white train car. They're exactly the same. Therefore, it's all equal and fair and good. Obviously, this is not the case, and that's a load of horse ducky. Anyway, in 1954, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, has a case on the books contesting equal quality education between all white and all black schools. This is Brown versus Board of Education. So, at the end of this case, the Supreme Court decides separate but equal is not equal. It's not right. And all schools must desegregate and integrate themselves, allowing both black and white students. Yay! Right? No, it's a hot mess. Here in KC and other cities, because KC's not unique in this, um, everyone is segregated. But look, if Troost is going to keep the black and the white population from living in the same neighborhoods, how are they going to comply with this order to desegregate their schools? They're not. Hence why schools east of Troost are still 90% black in 1970, which is like 15 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Oh, but Laura, that means the 10% is white, so they did integrate. No, that means that the low-income white families are sending their kids to predominantly black schools, not that black kids are attending white schools. And you know, 90-10 is not 50-50. It's not equal. Everything's still segregated. So, in 1967, the city passed a law that banned discrimination practices in house sales. By the way, did I mention that there was a Supreme Court case in 1917? 1917, way before all this, people. That basically said racial segregation was a direct violation of the 14th Amendment. True story. Buchanan versus Worley. I'll have a link for more information on that particular case on the website. Anyways, so... Of course, there's this huge backlash to the city's residential desegregation in 67. Uh, the city's like, okay, we'll vote on it. But there's rioting in the streets, literal rioting. So they decide, 
nope, never mind, we're not voting, it's done, we're just going to follow the Fair Housing Act. And the Fair Housing Act was Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, and it made it illegal to not sell a house to someone based on race, color, creed, sexuality, etc. But guys, we still have the Truce Divide today. Hello, that's why we started this episode. Because I said Truce Divide, and you're all like, oh yeah, that's a thing. We know what that is. And we still have redlining. You know, okay, look, if even if redlining was completely gone, like it never ever happened in our modern society, it did happen for like 40-ish years, and it's only been 50-ish years since the Fair Housing Act, so that might feel like a long time, but when you can drive down the street today and you can still see the physical impact of these practices of redlining, it's really not all that long ago. And we also have the gentrification of Troost. Uh, remember when I said about gentrification earlier in the episode? How we had urban renewal in the 50s and 60s, and that led to neighborhoods of low income being, quote, revitalized, and then people can't even afford their own houses anymore? Yeah, y'all thought that ended in the 70s. No, no, that still happens in multiple cities across America today. Several people that I went to grad school with actually study historical and modern gentrification. Um, anyways, I'll have an article for you on the gentrification of Troost on the website. So, that's a lot of information, but that is the end of today's episode. Before we go, let's talk sources. Uh, my two main sources for this episode were G.S. Griffin's Racism in Kansas City, A Short History, and The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Uh, Rothstein, as I mentioned earlier, is from the Economic Policy Institute, and he has a lot of uh, prestigious awards attached to his name, so he's big deal. He knows what he's talking about. Both were really helpful and really detailed. So Rothstein's entire book is about racist housing practices in the early 20th century in America, and Griffin focuses specifically on the treatment of blacks in Kansas City, beginning with slavery in the 1800s and then working his way up to the modern day. Additional sources, um, I'll have a short list of additional sources for you if you want to understand systematic racism in general. I found a really good short video on YouTube that I will post a link to on the website. I also recommend that you watch The 13th on Netflix. That will be an info dump. You'll probably have to watch it a couple of times. I did. Um, but it's great because you're like, okay, I know this and I know that. I didn't know that. And when you just put it all together, it's kind of mind-blowing. Um, Netflix and Hulu both have several other documentaries available that deal with police brutality and or structural racism in America. Uh, I also recommend that you read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And, um... The Articles of the 1619 Project by the New York Times. It's a series of really well-written and really interesting articles about, quote, different aspects of contemporary American life that have their roots in slavery and its aftermath, end quote, aka structural racism. And my quote there came directly from the website of the 1619 Project. You do have to create an account, like, for the New York Times to read this. And it'll ask you if you want to buy a subscription, but just say no and stick with the free version, and then you can access the entire 1619 project. 
If you know of any other books or documentaries um, that would help us white Americans understand structural racism in America, please send me a message and I will help spread the word. Thank you. Also, make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I'm HomegrownKC on all of these. And you can visit my website, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Um, I'll have links for articles uh, related to the topic that I discussed today. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. I know that um, financially it's kind of tough right now, but if you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. So what you do is you'll sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged $5 that day, and then $5 on the first of every month following that. Um, all that you give goes back into the show, pays for gas as I go back and forth doing my research. Uh, you'll also receive a shout-out here on the show, so let me take a moment to do that. Thank you, Mike, Bjorn, and Linda for your support. You guys are awesome. You'll also receive access to exclusive episodes uh, where I interview other historians in the KC area. If you can't commit to a monthly donation, you can um, donate, do a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries and the Black Archives of Mid-America, which enabled me to gather all of my research. Special thanks also goes out to my friend Kia and fellow historian Josh for being my readers on these episodes. Be kind to one another, be safe, wear a mask, and trust science. Thank you for listening. seem to shake this feeling and I can seem to get you off my